When one looks back over the course of America's history, 1968 stands out as a year that was particularly painful and tumultuous. In fact, those who lived through 1968, who were... old enough to be aware of just the way in which the foundations of our nation were being shaken, probably wondered whether or not our nation was going to survive all of the the wrenching uh, division that uh, was at hand. I was eight years old in 1968, so I remember very little of this firsthand, but have had a long-time interest in American history and especially in the history of presidents. So I've known at least a bit about this year in our country's history, especially from a political perspective. But I can't even begin to describe how much I learned from reading a brand new book about this year called The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. The author of the book, Luke Nichter, is professor of history and the James H. Kavanaugh Endowed Chair in Presidential Studies at Chapman University. And he has done a remarkably thorough job of telling the unwieldy story of 1968 uh, in such careful and thoughtful fashion. And in particular, by giving us the perspective of the four major players in the race for the presidency in 1968. Of course, Richard Nixon, who ultimately was victorious, Hubert Humphrey and George Wallace, his two opponents, and the incumbent president at the time, Lyndon Baines Johnson. They all played a very significant role um, in that presidential election. And uh, I am very uh, happy to have this opportunity to speak with Professor Nichter about his fascinating book. Again, it's titled The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Professor Luke Nichter, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's a a privilege uh, to be on the show. I am guessing from the photograph of you in the book that you are a little bit younger than I am and uh, were not around to experience any of this firsthand. I was I was a product of the late seventies, a Ford kind of Carter baby, uh, which which I think is good and bad. It means I have a lot to learn, that I don't remember things as well as those who lived through it, but it, but it also is an asset because it means that I also wasn't seared by these events. They weren't personal for me, and I think I have a more professional distance. I wasn't on the campuses. I wasn't drafted to serve in Vietnam like my uncles. And so, you know, so it's, it's both an asset but a liability when writing about a period that you didn't personally live through. Right. But I think you would probably argue, and I think you essentially do argue in your introduction, that that kind of distance is particularly important when it comes to something like 1968. One of the intriguing points you make is that because it was such a terrible, painful, wrenching year for our country— it was written about voluminously in the moment. You tell us about all kinds of things, that, all kinds of books that were written immediately in the aftermath, and even while some of this was unfolding in 1968, and all kinds of memoirs and uh, other uh, analysis. And uh, 
and and you say that almost all of that was very much shaped by personal experience and bias and and, and so on. And you 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 finish by saying the flood of quickly published works has led us to the assumption that we know everything there is to know about that year. And of course, your book is suggesting otherwise, that a lot of what we think about in terms of 1968 are based on assumptions and beliefs forged in the fire of the moment. Well, you know, I I say to my students, you know, I think journalists have the daily pressure, the deadline to write that kind of first draft of history. Uh, and only, you know, many decades later are records declassified by the National Archives and, and, and with the, you know, passage of people from the scene, diaries and personal records are opened. And here it is 55 years later, and I think we're beginning to sort of digest and sift through that time period uh, in a more dispassionate way. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, our own era today of broken politics, uh, I hope it doesn't take 55 years for us to see this era in a in a in a in a, in a different kind of light, but but it might be. I think the, the the book is sort of a lesson about kind of the essence of history itself. Exactly, and uh, and you say in your acknowledgments, so much of what passes for history today is not based on rigorous research. Too often, it is based on preconceived ideas or conclusions in search of evidence. This comment is directed as much as those who write history as it is those who consume it. We should demand better. And of course, that is exactly what you have sought to do uh, in, in, your, in your fascinating new book. Well, and that, and that comment, you know, doesn't make me popular at academic conferences <laughs> among colleagues. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think, um, and there are obviously exceptions, you know, to that statement, good exceptions. But I think too often, I think researchers, I try to follow a kind of scientific approach. I set out in a general direction, and I I, I don't know exactly where I'm going to end up. And in a book like this, I ended up somewhere quite different than I planned to. But I think too often, researchers start with ideas, and, and they go in search of shards of evidence. And as soon as they can prove those ideas, you know, they write it up and they're done. And so I, I've, I've taken, this book is a little different than that. And I appreciate that fact. One of the things that also sets it apart, besides trying to uh, stay clear of preconceived notions, is that uh, you, you talk about how you have tried to utilize a variety of forms of evidence you say all forms of evidence must be interpreted, triangulated, corroborated, and used with appropriate context and nuance. And, uh, and you actually uh, applaud really good researchers who, in a sense, have challenged you to do the best possible work that you could do. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the process of trying to assemble information and, and, and data uh, and, and evidence and, uh, and the, the, the sources to which you turned that were especially helpful for you? Well, you know, so a book like this, you know, there's a variety of approaches. Um, I, first of all, I, I tend to put a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests in to various federal agencies because, they're, you know, their FOIA backlogs are so long that if you don't do that early in the process, you'll never live to see the records by the time you finish. Uh, a second thing I do which helps me is I talk to archivists all over the place. 
and I try to find out what's new, newly opened, what's kind of what are you working on, what's been donated. And sometimes they, they don't tell you, but sometimes they do. And, and that's what led me ultimately to some of the Billy Graham materials that are kind of the centerpiece new evidence in the book. Mm. But I think also, you know, when I pick up a new book, I try to figure out what's the author's angle, kind of what's their side, what are they pressing for. And I, and I think this is a book that, you know, people like Walter Mondale influenced the way I tried to probe Johnson's maneuvering throughout the year. The, uh, some of the LBJ people, really, at a time when I wasn't planning to kind of treat George Wallace like a full member of this election, more like a third party, they said that would be a mistake. Uh, president Johnson always considered him to be a real presidential candidate. He got the same security briefings as Nixon and Humphrey, and it would be a mistake maybe for you to do that. You should reconsider that. So even along the way, you know, I, I, I try to be clear that, that, that I learned as I went along and try to figure out how do you, what's the best way to tell this story? So this is kind of the opposite of, of a preconceived idea. Uh, and and I, what I do in the book is I really don't take a political side. There's kind of a something for everyone approach. You know, I, I present the four major sides, as you said, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, and George Wallace in a way that I think the families and former staffers from each of those sides who, who talk to me, you know, I, I think they would recognize. So this is a little bit, I guess, of, about kind of how I go about uh, even beginning to think about how to, how to execute a book like this. Right. And by the way, as you're talking about this cooperation, which you did indeed receive from uh, the four major sides, Johnson, Humphrey, Nixon, Wallace, uh, you go on to say, and, of course, a lot of the principal participants are gone. Uh, and in some cases, you are talking about their offspring. Uh, but you talk to a whole lot of people. And you write at one point, I was struck by the number who told me they have never agreed to be interviewed before. And I suspect, <laughs> although you don't say it outright, you'll, you perhaps even talk to some people who no one has ever even thought to, to interview. I mean, they've never even been asked to have this opportunity to share their thoughts. Some, some have never been asked. Some didn't feel it was proper um, to divulge any. You know, it, when, when your boss is still alive or your political heroes are still alive, in some cases there were, there were some who assumed we're no longer with us, and they really were. They're just Some are hard to get to, intelligence officials and others. Some are not named. Um, some are more on background, some are on the record. And so I, I think when you approach people like this, wh whether it's a presidential kid, you know, to use that term, a staffer, someone who went on to be a, a politician of their own and, and, and serve in high political office, uh, look, interviews are, are not part of my background. Uh, I'm supposed to be sitting in an archive looking at dusty records. But I think it's important to talk to people because even though I don't remember what I had for breakfast, and so I don't really trust 50-year-old memories, people can give you impressions and kind of color commentary and can help you to triangulate materials, and you can warm up even very old memories, you know, with records. Oh, yes, I remember that now, now that you, now that you mention it. And so I try to look at people and documents and go to historics. I, do, I try to be as thorough as I possibly can, and, and as you say, that, that that's all part of the process. For those of you just joining us, I am speaking with Luke A. Nichter, the author of The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. 
This is an extraordinarily illuminating and fascinating book about that uh, that tumultuous year, and in particular that tumultuous uh, presidential election, uh, Nixon versus Humphrey versus Wallace, with uh, sitting President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, in some ways in the background, in some ways at the forefront, but for sure a very active participant in much of what uh, unfolded during that year. I really appreciate the time you take to tell us about uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, his background, what made him tick, and in particular, some of the ways in which uh, he found himself overwhelmed by the turbulence of this decade. And you spend a great deal of time talking about the decision that he ultimately made uh, to not run for re-election. Uh, one, of the, one of the most intriguing points about this is the decision he made and also the decision about when to announce his decision. Both really critical points. Uh, tell us, first of all, what you think most of us do not understand about what prompted uh, LBJ to ultimately decide not to run for election, re-election? Oh, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think virtually all books sort of write Johnson off as of March 31st, 1968, that, that, that live uh, televised announcement um, right at the very end of a speech about Vietnam. This is just after the Tet Offensive, um, that he would not run, he would not accept the nomination of his party. A lot of people assume at that point he's a lame duck. He's no longer uh, a political figure worth paying attention to. And, and the records that I found suggest otherwise, that he really remains at the center of the action for the remainder of his, his final year. And he just simply shifts from, from politics in terms of his own name on the ballot to, to his legacy and, and influencing the selection of his successor. And in, in the course of that, you know, I, I, I think what I discovered is that his personal health was a, was a much bigger factor. Uh, I'm not aware that his health records have ever been opened yet, but I think his health was much worse. I think he, he in 68, he turned 60, which doesn't seem very old to us today, given the age of some of our politicians. But, in, but his father died at age 60, and so he was very aware and kind of lived under this shadow uh, and knowing that sort of Johnson men died young, they, they had heart problems. And so I think he thought his term was limited, um, and, and that in, earlier in his life, he remembered, you know, Woodrow Wilson uh, didn't, didn't, was not healthy to the end of his presidency. FDR died while in office. And he didn't want to be a president who, as he saw it, was kind of semi-crippled in, in his final years. So he was very aware of historical precedent, much more than I realized paying attention to how Harry Truman in 1952 decided not to run against General Dwight Eisenhower, the timing of that. Um, he, he knew that Truman had announced in, in a right around after the New Hampshire primary in 52. He knew he had till about April 1st to make up his mind. Um, so the timing, the historical precedent, the way that the announcement was made, Johnson 
I think, much more than I realized, paid attention to what was appropriate and proper and what historical precedent was. Hmm. Uh, and it makes me wonder today even, you know, whether President Biden might be aware of both Johnson and Truman, and how do you make up your mind, how do you make that announcement uh, so it kind of comes full circle, you know, all over again. Absolutely. And, of course, in the case of LBJ, he wonders if he should make this announcement once he's sort of decided to make the announcement. Should it be announced as part of his State of the Union address, or should it be done at a later time? And, of course, that is what he ultimately does. And we've already mentioned March 31st as uh, the date that he announces a slight shift in our, our policy in Vietnam, and then at the end, in something that caught a lot of people uh, completely by surprise, announces he will not seek re-election. I wanted to just add briefly that uh, it is so fascinating to hear the uh, excerpts from his own memoirs and also the excerpts you share from the diary of his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, the First Lady. And you make passing reference at this point in the book to actually the unpublished version of her diary. And, uh, and for instance, this day of this speech, in the unpublished original version of her diary, she talks about her husband breaking down and crying for the first time since his own mother uh, had died. And uh, it's just uh, remarkable to think about how we are really looking into history in a very personal way, particularly when it is the original diary and not the one that perhaps has been tidied up for public eyes to view. Well, you know, it's difficult as a writer to write about someone who, who themselves, in the case of LBJ, who was not a writer. As far as we know, there are not LBJ diaries or extensive writings or reflections. There are a lot of White House tapes. But this makes Lady Bird's diary so important because she was a writer. She was college-educated. I mean, she was kind of way ahead of her time for her era. And she, her, what you realize when you study the diary, and still no author has really gone through these carefully, is you realize you know, a lot of her diary was dictated, it was recorded, and then it was typed up by a secretary, that often her, her, her dictations capture her thoughts, but also his. There are times when she talks about we and our reaction and how we're feeling. Sometimes he even interrupts her while she's dictating. You can, you can hear his voice, too, on the, on the, on the dictations. So hers really, in a sense, becomes almost the most, one of the most important records of this whole time period because she's so close to him, and she, and she keeps it really like a regular diary, and she's doing it almost every day. It gives you kind of a unique play-by-play of that time period. Right. You go on to explain some of the ways in which LBJ's speech was a bit misinterpreted, in particular some misunderstood the what prompted him to make the uh, make the announcement uh, when he did? We'll we'll leave that uh, for our, our listeners to explore uh, in your book, of course. So, with his withdrawal, then this means we're talking about figures like Eugene McCarthy and uh, Hubert Humphrey and and Robert Kennedy, uh, who are the kind of the primary uh, figures in in this uh, in this next. Uh, next uh, stage. When you go on to describe then the two tragic assassinations that occur, you make one observation about the assassination of Martin Luther King that uh, I don't remember ever reading before. You say that uh, King's death 
abruptly stopped any further progress Johnson hoped to make on civil rights during the remainder of his term. Johnson felt powerless to make any bold moves to address his unfulfilled agenda. I don't remember anybody making that connection. Uh, The fact that his own personal legacy, in a sense, became even more important to him in the wake of Dr. King's assassination. I think that's what you're saying. Well, I I think it is. And and also in the context of the 68 campaign, uh, the the twin assassinations, King and the Dr. King and then Kennedy, really prompt a, a shift uh, in the in the, the the focus of the campaign, I mean, early in the campaign cycle, we have the ten offensive, we, all of the, the the news organizations assigning correspondence uh, to the cam- various campaigns. Uh, these are often Vietnam experts. You're assigning because the assumption was Vietnam would be the issue. It would be a, a campaign decided by foreign policy, and then all of a sudden there's this domestic unrest as a result of these assassinations. And, and so I think most books will argue that, uh, that, that it was, Vietnam was the number one issue. And, and when you go back and you look at the reporting and you look at the polling data at the time, Gallup polls and others, that doesn't really track. When you look at the polls in particular, oftentimes the question would be, you know, asking what is the number one issue, sort of Vietnam is often, it is often the number one. But when you add up all the individual categories, violence and crime and unrest and racial tension, after these two assassinations, those individual categories begin to add up to more than Vietnam is. And so I think it causes a shift in the middle of this campaign. It's a shift in terms of how LBJ sees his own legacy, who he prefers as a successor, and even for the American people, how they ultimately came to view their own fears and desires you know, in that year and how they voted. Hmm. One thing you say is that in the wake of those two assassinations, President Johnson toyed with the idea of re-entering the race, that is, of changing his mind in terms of not running for re-election. I suppose it's difficult to gauge just how seriously he toyed. I mean, that's kind of a contradiction in terms in some ways, but I mean, uh, how much thought is, is it your sense of how much thought did he give to that possibility? Well, there's nothing at all static about Lyndon Johnson in 1968. I mean, he is riding the waves and the emotions of that year. You know, what I come away with in the book is basically when he steps down, I think initially in March 31st, I think he wants Nelson Rockefeller to, to be his, his, his successor. And he makes several sort of entreaties to Rockefeller to run. Uh, I think Johnson at the time thought that only someone with the, the political brand, the image, the good looks, the money of a Rockefeller could beat a Kennedy at the time when Bobby Kennedy was beginning to surge. But then after Bobby Kennedy's assassination in June, effectively giving the nomination to Humphrey and shifting the race to domestic issues, you can see how Johnson gradually shifts more into the Nixon column. Uh, the LBJ people all emphasized to me, you know, Johnson believed to be president. You had to have a killer instinct. And he didn't think Nixon had it. I mean, that Humphrey had it. He didn't always like Nixon. They were the ultimate rivals of their, of their, of their era. 
but that he that he did respect him as a politician and he did have those those the right instincts to be president. And so I think it, it unfolds. It's an evolution uh, that Johnson has. Uh, ultimately, he thinks about reentering because I think he thinks, as I say, Humphrey was a a good person, a good man, a very good politician, a good partner with him in the administration. Uh, but I think uh, the turbulent times might, in Johnson's view, dictated a, a reentry until he begins to shift more toward Nixon. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Luke A. Nichter about his brand new book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Uh, Chapter 2 is the first time you speak at great length about Minnesotan Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president uh, in uh, in that present term. And, of course, the man who ultimately is the Democratic nominee who goes down to defeat to uh, Richard Nixon in this hotly contested presidential race. Uh, I appreciate so much about what you dis- uh, the way in which you describe Hubert Humphrey, and in particular, his relationship with politics, which I think is kind of complicated. For instance, at one point you talk about Humphrey loving the rituals and fanfare of politics. But at other points, uh, you make reference to how uh, Hubert Humphrey had, in a sense, an aversion to other facets of of politics, of, of what politicians had to do. Uh, can you kind of help us uh, understand kind of Hubert Humphrey's complicated relationship with politics and his identity as a politician. Yeah, and, and this is the side of the, of the four of the campaigns that really most resonates with me. Uh, you know, I grew up a, a sort of a blue-collar kid from the Midwest, and, and meeting with a lot of those Humphrey uh, folks who are still around, uh, you know, uh, stories, the, the least guarded, the way they spoke, home-cooked meals, um, just you know, people who kind of talked uh, like the way I did, and just 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 could talk, and 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 not just to say exactly what's on your mind. You know, I think Humphrey was. There are different phases to Humphrey. You know, so the chapter begins in 1948 at the convention in Philadelphia when he, as a as a candidate for mayor of Minneapolis, well then then soon for for Senate, he boldly declares civil rights as being the next great kind of uh, a challenge the nation ought to take on, uh, which at that time was a, was a, was a, a, way to, a quick way to lose an election. And some thought he, he might sink it for Truman that year in 48, and go, goes on to have an incredible uh, career in the Senate, and, and, and as you say, become a, a running mate with Johnson and vice president in 64. I think Humphrey was just, uh, he's almost too good for politics. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, he's, you know, you look at kind of also rants in U.S. political history. I think Humphrey's one of those. He could have been president. Uh, he wasn't just another candidate. I wonder, and I'm tormented by this idea that I wonder if that was the wrong year for him. That his best year was '60. That that you know, a time of more kind of international tranquility, a domestic tranquility, where you could kind of focus on domestic programs. You know, I think he really understood the nuts and bolts. You know, take the Civil, Civil Rights Act of 64. And, and Johnson, to this day, gets a majority of the credit 
because, of course, he was president, you know, when the bill was passed. But people forget it was Humphrey who was the floor manager. And that was probably the reason why he got on the ticket that fall with Johnson uh, in Atlantic City in 64. It is Humphrey who understood and deployed his lieutenants to figure out, we need to figure out where the votes are, the soft votes, the moderate votes, those who are against us. We need to figure out every one of these senators. Do they go to church? Where do they go? Where does their wife shop? What are their habits? When can I call them at home and talk to the kids? I mean, the techniques, the sort of mastery of people and politics. I think that was Hubert Humphrey. It wasn't about power for him. It was about people. Uh, and and I, I think you know, it comes across to me as, as such a, a, a decent human being. You know, some of the Johnson people perhaps thought he was too decent. Um, but I think you know, I, this is a part of the book, I think, that for the Humphrey people, they would read it and say, uh, it, it rings true, or at least more right than not. Right. Uh, I, w- what you say at one point in in, in uh, contrast to the first uh, little thing about Humphrey loved the rituals and fanfare of politics, you write, on the other hand, Humphrey was not an ordinary politician. No matter how high he rose in his career, he maintained an innocence about how politics actually worked. A little earlier in that, very cha- uh, very paragraph you write, Humphrey and Johnson were oil and water in the sense that each functioned best with a minimum of the other. It sounds like almost from the start it was uh, an, an uneasy relationship and that in particular uh, Johnson uh, did not include Humphrey in his inner circle. I mean, I think the term f- frozen out <laughs> is used by the vice president in describing i mean his lack of access to president johnson and to the inner circle where the most important decisions were being made well i think what you see in the portrayal in the book is very much a political marriage uh you know johnson had been the sort of conservative balance in effect to the kennedys as johnson had been vice president 60 and I think, you know, Humphrey needed balance. I mean, Johnson needed balance in his own administration and needed a kind of authentic outreach to, to the to liberals in the Democratic Party. And Humphrey was, you know, the, the most credible, you know, liberal leader coming from the DFL in Minnesota and all that he did in Minneapolis. And so he was, you know, he was an ideal kind of liaison or, 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 you know, method of outreach to that part of the party, especially in the Civil Rights era. Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, and so much of the other major legislative uh, items that came out of the administration. So, but, but it was still fundamentally, a, as people, they were very, they were very different people, uh, but it was a very effective political marriage. Hmm. So when it comes to... Johnson deciding not to run for re-election, in many respects, of course, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, was the logical and and in some ways uh, unavoidable inherent front-runner with plenty of assets on his side uh, that you kind of outline. But you go on to say, but history was not on Hubert Humphrey's side the last sitting vice president to win a presidential election had been Martin Van Buren in 1836. So for all of those other occasions in which someone was vice president and then ran for president, uh, it it was exceedingly difficult to do that. Uh, 
explain why a sitting vice president faces uh, a really difficult uphill battle in terms of being able to win the presidency as vice president. Well, and this is something I, you know, I say in the classroom to my students. You know, anytime you have an election, because it happens periodically, where one of the candidates is a current vice president or is very close to the current president, imagine how awkward this is to run. Uh, Nixon did it in 60. Uh, Humphrey did it in 68. Of course, Al Gore did it in 2000. Hillary Clinton had a bit of that in, in, in 2016. She wasn't vice president, but she'd been a prominent secretary of state and member of, of Obama's cabinet. And imagine this. So if you're a vice president and you've been vice president for four years or eight years, and, and you're, you're proposing all these gr- wonderful policies, well, the cynic says, if they're so wonderful, why didn't you do them already during your four or eight years? And so you're in this awkward position as, as a political candidate, not as vice president, to argue that, that everything you did was great, but is somehow yet incomplete, and there's more to do. Uh, and it, it makes it very difficult to, one, organize around meaningful things, but also then, two, what is your relationship like with your president during that campaign? Uh, and you see that's very difficult. When this, you know, I remember Al Gore in particular had, had great difficulty. When do we deploy President Clinton? Do we use him at all? How do we use him? You know, you want to be close to him and seen that way in some circumstances, but distant in others. And I think that was exactly the challenge of Hubert Humphrey. Uh, he, he didn't know how to, to be vice president while also being the, the, his party's nominee. I think the advantage there uh, probably went to Richard Nixon, who also ha- ha- went through this in 1960 and didn't know how to, keep, how to utilize Eisenhower. And he lost narrowly to John F. Kennedy in 60. I think Nixon knew in particular how difficult it was to run a campaign under those conditions. And, of course, most of all, Hubert Humphrey never imagined he would be the nominee of his party. I think he was fully prepared until March 31st, and he he, barely had a few minutes' notice that Johnson was going to withdraw at the end of that speech on television. Uh, Humphrey was was already beginning to campaign on another four years of Johnson-Humphrey. So I think right from the very beginning – this person who was a very astute politician and, uh, and understood people very, very well, was just not very well organized to have a campaign. Hmm. You write at one point, and nicely summarizing what you're just saying, a sitting vice president has the awkward task of defending the president's agenda, otherwise they will likely lose the president's support and be criticized for accepting policies they did not believe in. Yet the same candidate must also argue the president's agenda was incomplete, it is difficult in such a campaign to organize around a meaningful theme. And you go on to say, you know, in terms of the specifics of Mr. Humphrey and Mr. Johnson, while Humphrey was saddled with Johnson's liabilities, he did not have Johnson's assets and had never commanded broad support from Democrats. And of course, that speaks to other issues that are quite complicated from this, uh, this uh, moment in time. This might be a good time for us to explain the peculiar and surprising connection that President Johnson felt with future President Richard Nixon, who, of course, were from two different political parties. And yet 
shared some interesting personal traits uh, which gave them a rapport with one another uh, that seems to have played a very important role in in the relationship they ultimately had in 1968. Uh, tell our listeners about some of the most important of those connections, including in particular the, the background that they shared. Oh, well, I think here's a case that, that on the surface you, you say very different people, a Republican, a Democrat, very different you know, politics, policy interests, and yet, you know, I think what ultimately uh, begins to bring them together, I, I would say in, in, in Lady Bird's diaries, this is early as early 1966, the day after the gridiron, when they, they have a private meeting in Johnson's bedroom in the White House, according to her diary, is you see the powerful force of, of their common enemies and rivals. You know, each was aware that they didn't go to prep school. Each was aware that they didn't go to Harvard or even among the best schools. Nixon, of course, went to Whittier College. Johnson went to what is now Texas State in San Marcos. Uh, each was aware uh, that the, it didn't seem like the national media liked them. They didn't get along very well. Party elites in their own parties didn't like them. Different elites, uh, they were looked down upon as unsophisticated by kind of East Coast establishment, uh, long-standing you know, political families. And so I think, you know, Lady Bird's diary would say something like, you know, when I heard Mr. Nixon uh, refer to Georgetown dinner parties, she would say something like, I, I could have sworn that was Lyndon himself talking. <laughs> and, and so you see that, you know, while they have kind of great differences on the surface, I remember it was, um, I remember his daughter, uh, Lucy, told me one time, very different politicians, uh, but the similarities meant that they had very great respect for each other. And I think they understood. I think not Johnson, you know, Nixon always said to to his his staff, you know, uh, don't don't be hard on Lyndon. You know, he's had it hard. Uh, and so the, and Nixon was always careful whenever he had to criticize a policy. You never criticize uh, Johnson. You might criticize the administration or the White House. Or that's why he talks so much about sort of new leadership to win the war. Don't talk about the old leadership. Uh, and so I think very, very careful, nuanced use of language that I think Bill Sapphire said it best in one of his books, that they were sort of like, you know, sort of two roosters in a cockfight, kind of circling each other with kind of, you know, knives attached to their spurs. And, you know, no one gets bloodied until the first one strikes first. And in this case, you know, each, I wouldn't say they ever trusted each other, but they respected each other. They never took an eye off of, of the other one, uh, and, and nobody got bloodied. Right. You write at one point, Johnson and Nixon were not personal friends, but they were friendly as long as they were not facing each other on a ballot. More importantly, they had common enemies. I should say that your, your chapter about Mr. Nixon includes a really interesting chronicle of his comeback in politics after, of course, going down to defeat in 1960 and then in 62 when he loses his bid for, uh, to be California's governor and, and uh, you know, of course, famously states, you won't have Richard Nixon to uh, kick around anymore. This is my last press conference. That, of course, changes dramatically. And, uh, and we all know the uh, ultimate end to that interesting story. We've not yet talked about George Wallace. And uh, I think a whole lot of people are going to learn a whole lot about this fascinating man. And in particular, the uh, the role that he played in the events of 1968 in terms of this 
race for president, as well as uh, the way in which his legacy lives on to this very day. I, I appreciate, for instance, the the what you say about the complicated position that Nixon was in when it came to George Wallace. You write at one point, the more conservative Nixon was, the more Wallace could hurt Republicans. On the other hand, the more Nixon floated to the left, the more Wallace could hurt Democrats. I just think it's fascinating to think about that role that a third-party candidate can play in terms of encouraging uh, one of the major party candidates to shift their own position in relationship to him. And apparently that is one of the things going on in this already complicated uh, situation in 1968. Well, and it, it's really a, only about once a generation in politics that we have a, a really serious you know, third-party challenger. Uh, in recent times, probably Ross Perot, uh, um, San, Barry, uh, Bernie Sanders play, paid a bit of a spoiler role in 2016, but what made Wallace so different is is this kind of populist, anti-elite, anti-establishment um, kind of demagogue. The the former and both future governor of Alabama, the most famous the state had ever had, who himself was in the midst of a political transition from kind of a regional sectarian gadfly to someone with real national political aims, who, who knows that his message has to, has to be modified. And Wallace does the unthinkable, which is not an easy thing to do. He navigates 50 sets of state laws to get on the ballot, you know, in, in, in every state. You know, I sometimes joke that there's there's so little on Capitol Hill today that would bring the, the, the two parties together, maybe a concern over China or social media companies. But a third one is running as a third-party candidate. If you enter as a third-party candidate, George Wallace had been a Democrat, Southern Democrat, uh, conservative Democrat, up to 68, uh, you immediately make enemies of both political parties in any state that you want to go into. So they can agree on the need to keep third-party challenges out. Wallace manages to overcome that, gets on the ballot, wins 10 million votes. And I think the real legacy is not the 10 million votes. It's that for the first time you take kind of an anti-elite, anti-establishment candidate, and you make it part of an establishment campaign. Even Nixon's own choice of Spiro Agnew as a running mate was kind of a way to take this anti-elite, anti-establishment and bring it into an otherwise establishment campaign. And I would argue every populist candidate, uh, Democrat or Republican, I think more recently Republican, who's run as a populist since, has kind of borrowed from Wallace's uh, use of rhetoric and energy and demagoguery, and, and it's done so w- w- largely with success. Hmm. And I think you also make such a good point about George Wallace when you say his critics, by remaining focused on his racist origins, missed the deeper bonds he was forming with anti-establishment supporters. In other words, there was more to George Wallace than the racism or history of racism that, of course, was very much part of him. And not that that should be minimalized, but that was not the complete picture. And and by missing some of the rest, uh, anybody opposed to George Wallace was doing themselves a disservice by not understanding the connection that he was, was forging. 
Uh, we need to move ahead just, uh, and we'll have just a couple of minutes, I'm afraid, to talk about what's, of course, an especially interesting chapter in your book, which focuses on the pain and chaos of the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968. Uh, I learned among uh, among many things that that President Johnson not only chose Chicago as the site, he chose the date of the convention, believing at that point in time that it would be him as the Democratic nominee. And by making it relatively late, that would mean less time he had to spend on the campaign trail. But beyond even those choices, LBJ is running everything. He has immense control over what happened uh, at that convention, which which in turn was a, a source of great unrest uh, for, for, for Hubert Humphrey. I mean, it was such a difficult situation he found himself in. Well, I was I was nearly knocked off my seat when the Humphrey people told me that, that they had to line up with members of the public to get tickets for the gallery at the convention in Chicago, you know, and, and, and Humphrey's the nominee of the party. Uh, you would think that after the party's nominee or after four years or eight years, um, it, it, you know, the party is in that particular person's image. But even though Johnson was off the ticket in 68, he wanted to make sure that the Democratic Party was still his party. E- even in retirement, I think he wanted to maintain his status as the nation's top Democrat. And at the convention in Chicago, he controlled the purse strings. He controlled the personnel. He controlled the policy, the platform, and even the tickets to get mm. into the gallery. You... This was still very much his party. Right. <laughs> you have Humphrey saying at one point, I'm the vice president of the United States, and I'm being treated like a Yugoslavian peasant. And then you go on to say, in a sense, his, meaning Humphrey's, most important challenger at the convention was Johnson himself. You tell us also that at one point, Hubert Humphrey at least briefly considered the possibility of resigning as vice president. And that gives us some sense of what we've touched on again and again in this interview his troubled relationship with with President Johnson and the way in which that was such a complicating factor. Well, the, the challenge for Humphrey, imagine this. I mean, every time you needed a, an aircraft to go to a campaign rally, you had to get approval from the White House to make a, a policy statement, a major campaign speech that touched on policy. You had to get approval, clearance from the White House. And so Humphrey had to find a way... To, to remove himself from all that and campaign on his own and be independent, but also not make that look like a declaration of war with Johnson and the Johnson White House. And that was the path, the circuitous path that he navigated that fall. I don't think he ever quite figured out the right balance between the two. Uh, and there were some who said, you know, you ought to resign uh, and just that you can be your own person and say what you really think. And so he, Humphrey, understanding policy and people, he tried to find a middle way. And so after September 30th, he never appeared with the vice presidential seal in front of the podium anymore, but he also didn't resign. So he wanted to send a signal that he was his own person and speaking for himself, 
But I think he felt that would have been a bridge too far and been disrespectful to Johnson, that the only reason he'd gotten that far in politics as it was was because of Johnson. And so, as I say, I, I think his sort of good-natured roots about people uh, prevented him from going further and being more of a partisan. Hmm. Well, ultimately, your book chronicles the campaign as it was waged between Humphrey and Nixon and Wallace, and you in particular explore some of the ways in which the Nixon campaign learned from the mistakes made back in in 1960, some of the shifts that Hubert Humphrey made through the course of the campaign in which things really tightened up before, of course, Richard Nixon pulling away in ultimate victory. Uh, I am so impressed with the way that you tell this complicated story in such clear and illuminating fashion. The book, again, is The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968, published by Yale University Press and the author Luke Nichter. Professor Nichter, thank you so much for giving the world this amazing book, and thank you for being my morning show guest. I was truly privileged and honored to speak with you. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thanks a lot.